Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. everyone welcome to true blue true crime this is episode three my name is sean and with me as per usual my wonderful co-host chloe how are you hello hello everyone i'm good it's not cool in here. I hate to get into the weather chat right at the front, but we're boiling. If you hear a thud during the episode today, it might be one of us just falling off the edge. Yeah, I saw you before checking the, the halogen globe in that light just to check the residual heat. So It'd be a good three degrees. Absolutely, yeah. A little, a little warm, but somewhat fitting as the case we're talking about today does take place in Queensland, the Sunshine State. So it's certainly not a sunny case but somewhat fitting that it's a little warmer in here, I guess. (laughs) Before we get into the case today, a couple of quick notes about the show, guys. True Blue, True Crime is a weekly podcast covering Australian criminal cases. We release additional exclusive content to our Patreon supporters on a weekly basis. And if you'd like to support the show, head on over to the Patreon page. The link will be in the show notes on whatever app you are listening on. Patreon is really easy. You can use your Facebook profile to sign up and support the show with a simple click, like buying something off eBay with your PayPal account. For $2 a month, you'll get exclusive Patreon episodes, access to Q&As when we do them, behind-the-scenes material, blooper reels, and 10% off in our merch store when that's up and running. Our financial supporters pay for the content that we produce, so it's really important that we can show you guys the extra love, and at the moment it's through Patreon, so we're very lucky to have a couple of new supporters this week, Chloe. Yeah, shout-outs for the new supporters this week. So welcome to Anna Mori and Michael Morrell. Thank you so much for your support on Patreon. We really appreciate both of you, and welcome to, we haven't thought of a catchy name yet, but welcome. (laughs) No, we really appreciate it, guys. Thank you for coming on board. Uh, We understand that everyone doesn't have the ability to do that. Uh, We really appreciate you checking out the regular episodes anyway. And there's other ways you can support the show. Tell your friends and work colleagues. The word of mouth thing really helps. You can join our Facebook discussion group. You can follow us on Instagram and share the podcast on social media too. And if you like the show, please do give us a five-star rating on iTunes or whatever app you use. And if you write a review as well, that really helps us. Thank you to everyone who has. We will read out the ones that we have so far at the end of this episode. 
Before we get into this one, Chloe, we do want to advise that this episode has some really graphic content and descriptions of sexual assault. So we advise our listeners to practice self-care and look after themselves. Today, we're talking about a serial killer, a guy whose case made national headlines at the time, yet he's not a household name. And his story, along with that of his victims, hasn't been widely told. It's a disturbing tale with a long trail of sickening crime spanning over three decades, set mostly against the sunburnt backdrop of southeastern Queensland in the city of sin, sweat and sorrow, a place where the harsh Australian outback meets the picturesque coastal beaches our country's famous for, a city where one of our country's most violent rapists and murderers would prowl in the shadows. thirty first of august nineteen ninety eight Rockhampton, Queensland. Jenny Ryan dropped off her daughter, Natasha, at school for the day. It was just another school day for the young girl who her parents endearingly referred to as Grasshopper. But when her name isn't marked off the roll call at school, and Jenny later receives a call regarding her daughter's unexplained absence, alarm bells start to ring for the Ryan family and they report Natasha missing. The police, in conjunction with the State Emergency Service, conduct a series of searches, but they find no trace of her. The young 14-year-old, who'd selflessly give up her Christmas days to visit the elderly and the ill, had seemingly vanished. Natasha Ryan had ran away in the months before this, aided by her boyfriend, Scott Black, but she'd been found after two days that time. Not this time. Her mother made many media appearances following this, pleading for information on her daughter's whereabouts. But the police investigation went cold. As the days turned into months and the months into years, the Ryan family began walking the path of acceptance that their beautiful Natasha was gone and they held a memorial service for her in Bundaberg, Queensland, on what would have been Natasha's 17th birthday in 2001. Sometime after this, a prisoner at the Walston Correctional Centre, a protection prison holding an abundance of pedophiles, sex offenders and high-profile killers, would confess to murdering Natasha Ryan. He provided a detailed confession to police and a map with two possible locations of her body. Two independent witnesses would also come forward and provide statements, confirming they'd seen Natasha in the company of this man before she disappeared. The man was well known to police and the broader Queensland public. For only a few years earlier, he'd been convicted of a similar crime to the one he just confessed. His name was Leonard John Fraser. Leonard Fraser was born on June 27, 1951, in the town of Ingham, northern Queensland. I don't know if there's any connection with Ingham Chicken in that town, But his parents, George and Agnes, who, that's not their real names, Chloe, they had five kids. Leonard Fraser was the fourth. 
His old man was a World War II veteran and a machinist, and his mum was a housewife. From a young age, it was established that Fraser had low intelligence. He was a loner. He was also easily angered. He would fly off the handle at almost nothing. He also had a speech impediment. The family moved around a lot due to his father's work. When Fraser was 14, they were living in New South Wales at this time, Leonard left school and started working. He started as his father's apprentice but got jack of that and told his old man to stick his job up his ass. It was alleged by Fraser that his old man beat him black and blue as a youngster, a claim refuted by his family later on who noted that his mother did the discipline in the household. But Leonard Fraser was undoubtedly a compulsive liar from a very young age. He would steal and lie about things he'd brought home, get into arguments with his siblings, and he wouldn't back down easily either. There was a tale I read about his younger brother being killed in a tragic machinery accident. His father was there at the time, but Leonard wasn't. Now, this story, as retold from Fraser's mouth in years to come, would change from him being present but not seeing it, to seeing it firsthand, to being involved in actually operating the machinery. So this is a good example of the embellishing we'll see from Fraser as we go along. At 15, after Fraser had been expelled from school and couldn't hold down a job, he'd eventually find himself in trouble with the law when he stole a gearbox from a car. His behaviour escalated from there when he eventually got caught for stealing a motorcycle, then while on probation for that crime, threatened to rape a local teenage girl. Now he wasn't charged for this, but the police recommended to the Fraser family he be sent to a juvenile detention home. And his family was reluctant to do this, but they'd had no luck with earlier psychiatric assessments, which would later indicate classic psychopathy. So they really had no choice, Chloe, than to send him to this boy's home. Things got a lot worse for Fraser at this home. It was a notorious place, apparently for being pretty hard on young boys. Allegations of abuse from staff, but also from the other boys... Fraser would be raped many times at this home and in turn he began raping younger and newer boys as they came into the place. It was described as a rite of passage. His parents continued to visit him fortnightly, bringing him pea and ham soup, but Fraser's behaviour and the formation of who he'd become had really happened in this home. For someone with the reported sexual dysfunction that Fraser had, it was the kind of environment that served to only make him worse. In 1968, he got out of the home and he beat the shit out of a railway attendant who was allegedly, this guy just made a remark about his girlfriend, Fraser's girlfriend. Fraser was placed on probation for this until age 19. Now, this attendant was actually known to the Fraser family. He wasn't a random person, but that didn't make much of a difference to Leonard. Between 1971 and 1972, Fraser would go to northern Queensland and continue his run of petty crime, stealing petrol and food, and continue displaying his compulsive lying, one time mentioning he'd had four daughters and five sons, which was nothing more than bragging. He served a short stint in Townsville's Stewart Creek Prison and was disciplined for aggressive behaviour. He worked odd construction jobs after this, all the while growing his rap sheet with car thefts and stealing offences. And then in 72, he goes to the notorious King's Cross, where he abuses prescription and illegal street drugs and alcohol. He also gets into street fighting, standover work, prostitution, before getting locked up for another short stretch. Upon his release, he returned to King's Cross, back to his previous vices, 
sitting for prostitutes, which earned him more than his previous $20 a day labouring job. He was living with a friend in an apartment and on 17th of October 1972, he and his friend had an argument. Fraser stormed off for a stroll around the nearby botanical garden to cool off, where he came across a female French tourist who was wearing a yellow dress. She approached Fraser. He was a bit Popeye the sailor looking, I reckon, Fraser. He he was kind of like a rapey Popeye. Popeye the rapist, we'll call him. So maybe she thought he had good bearings or something, you know, like someone from the Navy might, but she asked him for directions anyway. Fraser, who was already angry, couldn't really understand her with her accent, and when she walked off past him, he grabbed her around the throat, covered her mouth, and began punching her in the face. He hit her so hard that they'd later find blood spatter on the nearby trees. The 37-year-old mother of two passed out from the pain and the fear of death, and Fraser raped her and then he robbed her. He fled thereafter, leaving behind one of his thongs and a handkerchief in his frenzied state. Fraser had broken her nose, fractured her cheekbone, left her face and genital area bloodied and covered in sand, and the attack inevitably was so brutal it left her unable to have any more children. Fraser wouldn't be connected with this crime until some years later, but not long after this attack, he'd be before the court again for unrelated offences of assault, robbery and earning money from prostitution. He'd get five years in Parramatta Jail where he'd learn boxing, allegedly sparring with some of the world's best, another Fraser tall tale, I think. He also became a master craftsman around this time, building furniture and the like. And around this time, he also lost half the index finger on his right hand, maybe a brush with a power tool, but who knows. When he got out again 18 months later, Fraser struggled to get work, allegedly because of his awful parole officer, not his criminal record, of course, and he was soon back to his old ways. Within a month of being out, Fraser would rape another two women, one on July 11. He stalked this one woman up a quiet road, dragged her up an embankment while twisting her arm behind her back and viciously raped her. He made her walk with him while holding hands after the attack as if she wasn't humiliated enough before leaving her by the roadside and going back home to his parents' house, acting like nothing had happened. Under a week later, he entered a dry cleaning store. This one is so brazen. He asked for his dry cleaning, which he'd never dropped off at the store, just so he could follow the woman out the back of the store where he he attacked her. But this rape attempt was thwarted by customers who came in the store and Fraser fled. He'd get too careless with his next attack, A few days later, he was in Sydney's Outer West, a suburb named Rooty Hill, believe it or not, but it was here he'd attack a woman as she walked down the street, punching her in the face and forcing himself upon her. She intelligently turned the tables and convinced Fraser to take her back to his house for consensual sex, and it worked. But on the way back to his place, she made a break for it and alerted a nearby neighbour. Fraser fled again in panic, leaving behind his wallet this time, which contained his birth certificate. So he's leaving a more definitive trail of breadcrumbs for police each time. As if the thong and the handkerchief weren't enough, he leaves not only his wallet, but the most primary form of ID anyone could have. I mean, who carries their birth certificate around in their wallet anyway? Fraser was arrested after this and he confessed to all three prior sex attacks and he was charged and then sentenced to 21 years jail and ordered to undergo a psychiatric assessment. 
He also defended himself at trial, which is classic psychopathic behaviour, thinking for starters that he was even capable of this, and secondly, that he was smarter than the professionals prosecuting him. He was assessed as a pure psychopath, no emotion, no regard for remorse. Fraser also admitted to the psychologist that he'd had homosexual affairs and belonged to a bikey gang, but I think we take both of those things with a grain of salt. As we mentioned earlier, he was known to be a liar. Now, the next seven years are difficult to shed much light on. Fraser would be incarcerated and his prison records are sealed due to privacy legislation, so there's really no accounts existing of his conduct inside during this time. But if the past behaviour he's displayed is any indicator, and it is, because when he gets out, he goes on to do much worse, I think we can safely surmise the type of prisoner that Fraser was during this time. But you heard correctly, seven years. I did say Fraser was given a 21-year sentence. Well, he only served seven of those before being released on parole. He was assessed by the parole board as being of little threat to the community. That sounds crazy, but it still happens today. I mean, look at uh, Adrian Bailey, Chloe, who murdered Jill Maher. That was a modern example of a a pig like this who should have been behind bars, I think. Happens too often. Hmm. But anyway, Fraser went back to his parents upon release and they were living up in Mackay, Queensland at this time. In the wake of his grandmother's recent death, it was said that Fraser took out his anger on a local woman there. He visited her house under the pretense of buying a car that she was selling. He attacked the woman, dragged her inside her own house, but then a strange turn. He said he wasn't going to hurt her but just wanted to prove a point. Then he phoned the woman's husband and said... I hope you're not going to kill me. I just wanted to prove a point that somebody could break in and rape your missus. The woman asked him to stay downstairs until her husband arrived home, but Fraser fled in his usual style. He got two months for this aggravated assault, by which time his parents were now living in Hayes Point, Queensland, in a caravan park. Fraser went there with them upon his release, and it was here he fell in with a 26-year-old single mother named Pearl Rigby. This was the first time Fraser would have a serious and seemingly stable relationship and an accompanying stable period in his life. He and Pearl would be together for three years. They'd move into a two-bedroom flat in Mackay together. Fraser would become a stepfather even to Pearl's son, and the couple would have a daughter together. She described Fraser as a normal guy who worked hard on the railways. He had a pension for partying and his co-workers called him animal, but otherwise he didn't drink too much, he wasn't violent, and their sex life was normal, she said. He'd successfully hid his past from Pearl, but it wouldn't be much longer before the real Leonard Fraser, Lenny the Loon as he was known, would resurface. a.m. on the 30th of July, 1985. A lady named Lisa, that's her pseudonym for this story, Chloe, was walking along the beach at Shoal Point near Mackay. She was collecting shells and driftwood for art projects that she worked on. Unbeknownst to her, Leonard Fraser had been stalking her for some time. He'd been watching her from a distance with binoculars and that morning left his de facto wife and baby at home telling them he'd gone to work 
but instead he went on the prowl, following his next predetermined victim, Lisa. Now, Fraser hadn't raped for 11 years by this point, that we know of, factoring his seven-year prison stint and then the three years of stability with Pearl. He followed Lisa along the shoreline and stunned her with a brutal attack. He forced her into the bushes and she tries to convince him to come back to her house, but Fraser wasn't falling for that trick this time. He ejaculated prematurely and then raped her in a frenzy, ripping off her bikini bottoms and stopping to let her remove a tampon before violating her. He made a sickening remark about the amount of semen on her legs afterwards, but refused to let her wash it off in the ocean, instead ordering her to stay as he retrieved his binoculars, but then ran off. Lisa would report the attack and the ensuing police investigation would lead to Fraser through record checks and Lisa would positively identify her attacker. Although he denied involvement, Fraser's DNA would be connected to the semen found at the crime. He'd go to jail again where he'd be continually reassessed and with things ending with Pearl, obviously, since his history was forcibly disclosed after this attack, he'd strike up a relationship with a female prisoner inside and he'd also begin to claim Aboriginal ancestry, which his family would deny, saying that they only had Scottish heritage. Fraser would be comfortable in prison, having spent much of his life in there to this point, and his constant lying and bouts of rage would continue. Staff and prisoners alike knew that if this guy got out, he'd re-offend and end up straight back in there for life this time, likely for the rape and murder of a woman. Nevertheless, Fraser would get out of Etna Creek Prison in 12 years' time. Nowadays, they have laws in place to keep violent repeat offenders like Fraser behind bars, but back then, once he'd served his full sentence, which he did, the 12 years was the full sentence, and they made him serve all of it, but they had no choice but to let him out despite the psychiatric assessments. It's 1997, and Fraser is out and living in the town of Yapoon. He struck up a relationship with a woman here called Marie. Her and Fraser saw each other for a while and she ended up being diagnosed with terminal cancer. So I believe this lady, Marie, was basically leaving to pass away. She was going into a hospice final stage of life facility to die with dignity. Fraser had other plans. Fraser took Marie into a chapel at this hospital and he viciously raped her. After the rape in the chapel, Marie stood by him though with Fraser saying that it was out of love for her, it wasn't rape. Marie confided to her doctor and her mother about the rape, but she died about two weeks later and never reported it to the police. Fraser wouldn't slow down now. Shortly after this despicable act, which he isn't apprehended for, he moves to Mount Morgan. So Mount Morgan is this little mining town about 20 minutes out of Rockhampton. It's described as a funny little place, Chloe, with only a few thousand residents. It reportedly has its fair share of social outcasts, let's say. He was often spotted on the prowl at numerous times and at strange hours, very early morning, and he'd regularly engage girls in chatter as they walked home from school. He'd stand near his front gate and chat them up. But locals described his temper as being the standout point, and he's lying. You could never tell fact from fiction with Lenny, they would say. He pissed off the local police pretty quickly. He's pulled over for a routine stop and asked the officers what the women are like around here. The police checked him out and were staggered to find out this scumbag's criminal history and couldn't believe he was out of prison. They knew at that point they had trouble. 
A uh, couple of times I uh, picked him up and I saw him, especially at night time, put him in the car and uh, now that I'm out of the job I can say this, <laughs> uh, and we'd take him for a ride and have a bit of a serious talk to Len and uh, suggest that he should move on. I didn't want him hanging around the kids. But uh, it wasn't until later on, towards the end, just before Len did leave, that we realised exactly what was going on in that house and some of the neighbours had no idea. But uh, there was young girls being drugged and raped at night point and uh, they had threats made against them that uh, if they ever, ever at any time went to the police or reported it, well, there'd be a, uh, members of a motorcycle gang that would come or a biker gang would come in Mount Morgan and fix them up, well and truly fix them up and their parents up. And even to this day, some of those people still believe that would have happened. So that was a clip of Sergeant Stan Lane, who was a police officer in Mount Morgan at the time. Fraser would eventually be run out of town when he spiked the drink of a young local woman with rehypnol and dragged her home to his place from the pub. And the sergeant and his team would later discover, as Stan Lane said there, after he left, despite them having their close eye on him, that he had been drugging and raping girls in this home and subsequently threatening them and their parents with retaliatory action from bikey gangs. Now, the local police suspect that he'd raped up to 16 women in this time at Mount Morgan, but none were officially reported. A lot of these women were what was described as intellectually disabled too. In 1998, after being run out of Mount Morgan, Fraser moved into a flat in Rockhampton with a woman who had an intellectual disability. Her name was Christine Wright another person who's fallen for his psychopathic charm and entered a relationship with him. So Fraser potentially found the ultimate girlfriend in her. She had an intellectual disability. She was diagnosed with developmental delay and had a low IQ. She had a very basic understanding of life and how to live, struggling with basics like hygiene. From what we've learned about Fraser, she was the perfect girlfriend for him, easy to prey on and control, but she was also verbally abusive and this would set Fraser off. They lived together in a house before moving to an apartment in Baker Street, Rockhampton. In the time at the house, Fraser would be caught by a housemate having sex with a dog. The housemate's boyfriend confronted Fraser about it and Fraser took a swing at him. Fraser then poisoned the dog with rat bait and buried it in the days after. He was also witnessed strangling a kitten to death with his bare hands at one point while living in this house. He was really ticking all those serial killer boxes yeah, and we read a couple of conflicting reports as to whether this was actually his dog or his housemate's dog, right, Chloe? Because mm. he gets a bit emotional about the dog later in the story. But anyway, that's beside the point. Fraser would be out on the prowl from 10pm through to 4pm whenever he wanted, walking the town and luring women. He raped many women, mostly unreported to police during this time. He stalked other women and police received many complaints about him. But he kept all of this a secret from Christine Wright. He just used her for his sexual urges when they arose, and it wasn't uncommon for him to punch her in the head while having his way with her. One time during an argument, he hit Wright so hard that she toppled over the balcony and into some bushes, which broke her wrist. They attended the local hospital, and Fraser would cop another assault charge for this. I was going to say he had more of these than pairs of socks by this point, but that was literally the case, because Fraser had taken to barefooting it by this point. 
and I mean literally wearing no shoes or socks, Glow, not following Scott Pape's independent financial advice. And this was due to his shoe print being found at a previous rape crime scene that he was jailed for, as we discussed. During this following year, Fraser would become the serial killer he'll forever be remembered as, but it wouldn't all become known at once. This would gradually unfold over the course of time. On the 22nd of April 1999, a young girl named Kira left school and began her walk home. She visited a local news agency with a friend of hers and then took a shortcut through a vacant block near the town's high school. The block she cut through was over an acre in size between Robinson and Dean Streets in Rockhampton, bordered by houses, the high school and a leisure centre. Fraser had stalked the young girl the day before. Students from the school nearby would later comment on seeing him, this feral-looking bloke with a hand-rolled cigarette and bulging, angry eyes in his head. Lynette and Kerrod Kernan were having their usual cups of coffee on their back deck. They would see Kira walking through the block and they saw the man following her. It was the same guy they'd seen the day before following her and at first they assumed this man was the young girl's father but then they saw him hit the young girl But because the grass was so long, the Kernans couldn't see exactly what was going on, but they were pretty sure they'd seen him wallop the little girl and could only see him coming up and down every now and again in the grass. Fraser ran up behind Kira, delivered his trademark king hit, which floored the poor little girl, knocking two of her teeth out, concussing her, possibly causing her brain damage. As she bled out on the grass, a barefoot Fraser ripped off the schoolgirl's underpants and raped her, and then he was gone. Minutes later, he arrived back at the scene with a red car, a Mazda 626, I think it was, he was driving, and he wrapped Kira's body up and put her in the boot of his car. And for some strange reason, the Kern couple would take around half an hour to contact the police about this. But nevertheless, they described the man as being a feral-looking bloke smoking a cigarette. The Kernan family would come under a lot of scrutiny from the Rockhampton community at this time. This description is put out to the local media pretty quickly, and the police visit the scene and make casts of the tyre tracks and footprints made in the ground. That afternoon, a local prison custody officer sees a man matching the media description, broad as it was. This officer was backing his car out of his driveway at the time and he knew this man that he saw. He gave him a point to which the man responded with a wave in return. He knew this guy because he'd spent much of the past 22 years in prison for theft, robbery and rape. It was Leonard Fraser. Police visited Fraser after receiving the tip identifying him and they confronted him with the information they had. Fraser voluntarily comes back to the station, but he's adamant that he had nothing to do with the disappearance of Kira Steinhardt. The police don't buy any of this and place Fraser under arrest for child stealing and then inform the Steinhardt family they have a guy in custody who might know where their daughter is. Then Fraser starts throwing around this name, a guy named Squeaky, who he'd allegedly lent his car to. But the police speak with Christine Wright, Fraser's girlfriend, and she tells them a different tale. She says that around 4.30 on that afternoon that Kira went missing, Fraser took her for a drive up a dirt road out near the Callaghan Racecourse. There, she said she witnessed Fraser carry a small doll-like body with blonde hair from the boot of the car. So this triggers a massive search. The police and the SES search the area extensively 
and they even call in divers, but they discover no traces of Kira. Days pass without any further leads other than what the police already have against Fraser, that is, and he's not budging from his story about Squeaky, but that changes. A guy named Brett Bignall, who was a former inmate who'd done some time with Fraser and was actually a neighbour of his at one point, volunteered to share a cell with Fraser and wear a wire. So Bignall went into the cell under the guise of being done for some traffic infringements, I think, Chloe. That was his reason for being in there. Fraser would ask Bignall at one point to get rid of a pocket knife he'd hidden in a peg basket at his flat. Now, police searched and found it, and forensics would note it had been cleaned, but not well enough. There were still traces of Kira Steinhardt's blood on it. Fraser would play games with the police, throwing numerous red herrings out there during the interrogation. But eventually, with the evidence mounting and eventually overwhelming, he'd crack. During his 13th day in police custody, Fraser confessed to the murder of Kira Steinhardt. It was suggested he deliberately waited until this point because he thought enough time had passed for any DNA evidence indicating sexual assault to be degraded and non-existent, having learnt this from his previous crimes and jailhouse education. So he was happy to confess to murdering the young girl at this point, but didn't want the sexual assault on her record. He stated that he'd blacked out during the events and denied undressing and raping her. Fraser led the police to Kira Steinhardt's body, which he'd hidden in a dry creek bed, covered under grass and propped up against a tree. She was naked with just a school jumper draped over her. She had one knee up and her throat had been cut. And this wasn't anywhere near the location that Christine Wright, Fraser's girlfriend, had reported. So that comes into question, and Fraser admits to deliberately staging this, So that's a pretty extreme thing to do, isn't it? I'm not sure what he intended to come from this. It could be a couple of things. Firstly, he might have been testing rate to see if she'd rat him out, but ultimately the police would find nothing at this location. Or maybe, too, he thought he'd be connected with Kira Steinhardt's murder anyway. Maybe he felt like he'd been spotted or or he got nervous about it, and this tactic was purely diversionary. Mm. And either way, the day after the police discovered Kira Steinhardt's body, Fraser is formally charged with her murder and with child stealing and hiding her remains. Supporting his confession and location of her body, forensics find matching blood on a knife owned by Fraser, as we mentioned, the young girl's hair in dozens of locations throughout his car, and finally, matching tyre casts with his vehicle. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'd like to talk a little bit about Kira at this point and the rest of Fraser's victims too as we get to them. I think it's important that they're not just a statistic on his record and we talk about who they were in their own right. Kira Steinhardt was born on the 12th of April 1990 to Teresa Leanne Steinhardt and Des Sutton. They had an ongoing casual relationship that produced Kira, and Teresa chose that name for her daughter because she was the key to her heart. 
but she lost that, her best little blonde-haired, blue-eyed friend, at the hands of this piece of shit. In 1993, Teresa would meet Blair Cruther. They'd enter a stable relationship, Cruther being a gainfully employed as a forklift driver, and they'd buy a house together and have a son named Connor. Kira was a great sister to the young boy, and she was a bright young girl. She loved recording herself singing and listening back to her own voice, running gymnastics, and on the morning of her last day, she'd watch cartoons with her mum and brother before she'd left for school. So it would seem that Fraser had graduated to murder, but the police knew his history, and now they knew the lengths that the man would go to. So he went right up the list of persons of interest in a few missing persons cases that the Queensland police were investigating at this time. Four cases, to be specific. That of Natasha Ryan, Julie Turner, Beverly Lego, and Sylvia Benedetti. You might recall Natasha Ryan's name from our episode introduction. And as mentioned, Natasha Ryan was a local Rockhampton girl who was last seen in town near a laneway. She was only 14 but had previously run away with her boyfriend on one or two occasions, but she'd always resurfaced in the days thereafter, not this time. Her family hadn't heard a peep from her in years, despite her mother making numerous appeals in the local television and newspapers. Julie Turner had been at a nightclub with friends on the 27th of December 1999, having a few drinks and a dance. She was last seen leaving the club in the early hours of the morning and her friends recounted that she had no cash for a cab, so she was going to walk home. The alarm bell was raised in the days thereafter by Julie's daughter, who was surprised that her mum hadn't called to talk to her grandchildren. There was no sign of Julie at her home and nothing in her bank accounts had been touched in days, weeks and months after her disappearance. Beverly Lego had lived in Mount Morgan previously. Her and Fraser actually knew each other, living in close proximity to one another when they were both in the small town. She too was missing, last seen 1st of March 1999 in Rockhampton. Sylvia Benedetti was last seen on the 18th of April 1999. She was 19 in a relationship, but sleeping at rough by all reports. She was last seen in the company of a male near the Rockhampton Mall, and this male was later confirmed to be Leonard Fraser. So the police start putting different puzzle pieces together when it comes to Fraser and these missing women, first being Sylvia Benedetti. Forensics of Fraser's car would come up with some interesting results. Blood type DNA would come back from his boot hinge as a positive match with Sylvia Benedetti. Benedetti's picture was then identified by Christine Wright as being someone that Fraser knew. There was evidence of Sylvia's untimely murder found by wreckers at a derelict hotel in Rockhampton. It was the Queensland Hotel, I believe, in room 19. Her blood was sprayed across the walls, floor and ceiling. Pools of blood typed to Sylvia, along with bone fragments, tissue and teeth all matching to her, indicating she'd come to an absolutely brutal end. At the time of all this being put together and connected with Fraser, he was being held in remand awaiting trial for Kira Steinhardt's murder. While there, he met up with an old cellmate of his from when they'd done a stretch in Parramatta jail together. This guy's name was Alan Quinn, 
Quinn was a con man and a pretty big dude. I think Fraser sort of leached onto Quinn as a protective measure. Being a child killer or alleged child killer and rapist, he was an unpopular prisoner, obviously. Fraser confided in Quinn that he thought he was essentially a goner when it came to the murder of Kira Steinhardt. I mean, he confessed and taken the police to the body, so I'm not sure how he was planning his defence strategy around this, but he mentions to Quinn he might plead insanity at trial. Now, Fraser does mention these other missing women to Quinn. I'm not sure how they came up in conversation or whether Quinn asked him about them directly, but Fraser denies any involvement with their disappearances to begin with. Quinn and Fraser are strolling around the prison yard one day, and Quinn gets to thinking that he'd like to help. He remembered these families and what they'd gone through and thought maybe if he started taking some notes on their conversations and passing them on to the police, it might get some resolution. But it was around this time, with events falling into place, the evidence mounting and Quinn's note-taking, police pieced together what happened to Sylvia Benedetti. Yeah, Sean, and a bit more about Sylvia Benedetti. She was born on the 3rd of January 1980. She was the second child and only daughter of Sergio Benedetti and Betty Hadfield. Described as a warm, lovable and mischievous girl with dark, beautiful features. It was reported she was sexually abused by her father and her parents' marriage failed as a result. And this also led her down a road of depression and drug abuse in the latter years. Antisocial and described as sexually outrageous at times in both her mood and what she'd openly discuss with people who were almost strangers. Sylvia met Fraser through mutual friends at Centrelink in late 1998, early 1999. Fraser had helped her carry groceries one time and they'd spoken several times since in the mall and at one time he'd even walked her through the mall as protection when she was being harassed by someone else. And there was an abandoned old pub called the Queensland Hotel in downtown Rockhampton. This place was all boarded up to keep squatters out but Popeye the rapist had turned it into his own private lair of sorts. On the 18th of April 1999, around 730 In the evening, on what was a balmy Sunday, Fraser had lured an unsuspecting young Sylvia Benedetti back to the derelict pub with the shiny promise of a few joints and a bed for the night, which was a decent proposition for the hard-sleeping young girl at this time. So Fraser gets her back to his hidey hovel of sorts, and pretty quickly it becomes apparent he has less than admirable intentions. He makes a pass at Sylvia, moving in to plan to kiss on her, but she knocks him back spurns his advances, which angered Fraser greatly. He immediately retaliates with a king hit, then picked up a nearby piece of wood and bludgeoned her four times across the head with it, an absolute brutal ending for the young girl. But Fraser wasn't done. He went on to rape her, leaving a bloody handprint on the wall above her head, and after he'd gotten what he needed, he began thinking about the clean-up but a noise in the building startled him through his train of thought and he had to investigate. After surveying the area, he returned to room 13 and resumed his clean-up, but his view wasn't great in this place. While he had some light left from the street, it was obscured by a lot of the boarded windows, so he was working in a very dimly lit space. And so what would have usually been a more thorough clean-up from the now experienced rapist and killer who had been honing his craft for many years, turned into what can be described as a sloppy rush job. Yeah, so try as he could, he just couldn't clean everything up. It was too much mess. 
There were bone and teeth fragments embedded in the carpet, and the blood spatter went some three metres up the walls and onto the high ceilings, and it had begun to dry out by this point. So Fraser realised he wasn't going to hide the crime, despite his best efforts. Somehow he'd even managed to scrounge up a damp cloth for cleaning from this uninhabited dump, but he was no match for the damage he caused, so he set about eliminating anything that placed him there. For the time being, he dumped Sylvia's body in the bathroom downstairs, and I believe he strung her up and bled her out, and then he cleaned himself up. The plan was to come back and save her some more time with his kill in the following days. However, only three days afterwards, Fraser learned that the place was set to be demolished imminently. Now, this sent him into a head spin, but honestly, surely he could have seen that coming. I mean, the joint had been condemned, he knew that, that's why he'd set up camp there, but maybe he thought he had more time, I'm not sure. It certainly appears, as you said, Chloe, that old uh, Lenny the Loon was getting a bit more sloppy at this point. So he headed back to retrieve Sylvia's body, leaving behind a bloody outline in the bathroom where he'd propped her body up. He wrapped her head, which was matted with dried blood by now, in a towel and dumped her in the boot of his Mazda sedan. At this point, if I understand reports correctly, he got the urge to defile the dead body again, and in this heightened state of arousal, he carelessly nicked Sylvia's head on the boot hinge of the car. Then he headed on out to Sandy Point, about a 30-minute drive from Rockhampton. This was a pretty little spot, a surf beach, where Fraser had previously loitered and perved on people in the past. He was familiar with the sandy tracks winding throughout the area. He dug a makeshift grave in the soft sand with his bare hands, dumped Sylvia's body there and covered her up with bush and branches from the surrounding bushland. In September 2000, Fraser is tried and found guilty of the murder of Kira Steinhardt. He's given life with no possibility of parole. Now, since this time, police had spoken with Fraser many times in the mounting case involving the other missing women, and it became evident to Fraser during this that Quinn had snitched on him. But despite this, the pair managed to mend fences somehow, and after his sentencing in the Steinhardt trial, Fraser and Quinn are all of a sudden pals again on the inside. Fraser again starts to open up to Quinn, and this time he details locations with maps of other victims, both true and false locations, I might add. He was really into red herrings, Fraser, as you mentioned earlier, Chloe, but they were always poorly executed and with an obvious trail of breadcrumbs leading away and to the scene of the real crime. So these maps allegedly had the locations of four of the missing women. Quinn talked Fraser into giving these maps to police in line with his insanity plea. I suppose kind of saying, yeah, I did these too, look at me, I'm nuts, and possibly having his sentence overturned on appeal or ending up in his preference of a psych ward opposed to prison. Quinn went a step further and let an investigative task force bug their cell and even wear wires when talking to Fraser. But Quinn also had other intentions, planning to write a book about Fraser, this being another motivator for why he was helping. Quinn also said too, in addition to that, that Fraser was really obsessed with being known as a serial killer. He he was really into serial killers in general. So part of sort of Quinn's tactic, I believe, was getting him to disclose the bodies because if the police didn't find these, then he wouldn't be known as the serial killer. And what we're going to do is play a quick clip now with some of the recordings from the wiretaps where 
we hear Quinn probing Fraser for details on some of the murders. Did you say anything to, to um, Julie Turner before you knocked her? Huh? So no one would have heard you? Oh. Said nothing to her at all? Well, you told me that no one's seen you from the bridge, right? So no one's seen you in eyesight. But I'm saying, if you'd have said something to her, someone could have been in the shadows and heard you. That's what I, no one. You didn't say nothing to her. Didn't say nothing. If anybody was there, they would have said something. They would have went to the clothes. So they just walked out and smashed it. Nothing more to say in it anymore. Whatever. Yeah, all right. She was still there. So Quinn was doing this out of the goodness of his heart, but also for the book deal. The old book deal for the jailhouse snitch, Chloe. Look, it's it's easy to hang shit on Quinn, honestly, because he was a convicted criminal himself. He was a, a con man, as we mentioned before. But he really did a lot of good here. We're going to talk more about Alan Quinn, his story, and the whole saga of him informing on Fraser in more detail on our next Patreon episode. Detectives, armed with all this information, interview Fraser and he confesses to the murders and offers to take them to the locations of the bodies of Benedetti, Lego and Turner. Police locate these bodies with Fraser's assistance and it was obvious to examiners that he'd revisited the sites where he dumped the bodies afterwards. All of the bodies had no clothes and Julie Turner's head had been removed. Fraser, once again, made the query about the disintegration of DNA over time, which led to the reasonable inference that he'd sexually assaulted all of the women before or after they'd been murdered, or possibly both. The stories of what happened to Beverly Lego and Julie Taylor would unfold around this time. Beverly Lego was born in Sydney on the 21st of March 1963. She had a rough start in life, with her parents separating early and living a somewhat volatile lifestyle, until her grandparents took her on and she moved to their farm in Gympie, Queensland. She was a happy child and thrived in these new surroundings, she was good at sports in school, and by year 10 she decided she wanted to work and took a job at a nearby nursing home. She got a car and then eventually moved into a flat in Rockhampton, and this is where things took a turn for Beverly. She had a string of rough relationships, and then at one point she ended up going to Singapore for a modelling job, but it turned out to be anything but. When months rolled along and no one in the Lego family had heard from her, people started to worry, and her family contacted the Department of Foreign Affairs. It turned out Beverly was in Changi Jail. This model job was effectively a front for sexual slavery, and she'd been addicted to heroin, made a sex slave, and forced to smuggle narcotics. She was really lucky to escape all of this, but she did. However, things never really got any better for Beverly Lego. She had ongoing battle with mental disorders and was eventually diagnosed as schizophrenic. She'd meet Leonard Fraser in Mount Morgan in 1997 while staying at a hostel, He was a creep then, always making unwanted sexual advances. In 1999, now in Rockhampton, she'd bump into Fraser once again at Centrelink and they got chatting. They were friendly acquaintances. They'd go for walks together in Mount Morgan and talk from time to time. Typical Fraser-style grooming, it would seem. 
February 25, 1999, they had had a coffee together and then went to Fraser's apartment and Beverly freshened up, showering and getting changed into some of Christine Wright's clothes. At this time, Beverly was reluctant to return home as the fellow she was dating had a disagreement with some drug dealer, so she was giving the place a wide berth until it blew over. Fraser's place was the perfect base for her for a few days. Fraser convinced her to come for a drive with him to Yapoon to pick up his girlfriend. On the drive, the pair broke out into an argument when Fraser put his hand on her leg and she spurned his advances, a common theme for the sleazy Popeye. So Fraser loaded up a corking right hand and punched her in the head as hard as he could. And this is a big dude we're talking about here, Chloe, right? A lot of force behind that. Lots of upper body strength from his manual labouring work. He was always described as being a very strong and fit-looking guy. Now, the punch knocked Beverly out cold, and she lay slumped and bleeding in the car as Fraser went off-road at this point, heading towards Nankin Creek. She started gurgling and convulsing, and Fraser just kept driving. He went up Emu Park Road, and when he stopped, Beverly had stopped making any noise, presumably choked at this stage and quite possibly deceased already. Fraser carried her through Thorny Lantana when he spotted a perfect little dirt clearing under the brush to bury her. He removed her black briefs and bra and made a tourniquet before strangling any remaining signs of life from her and then raping her. When her body was discovered some 18 months later, an autopsy would show bone fragments and part of her larynx in the tourniquet. That's how tight this thing was, Chloe, and the brute strength that Fraser put into his kill. Julie Taylor was born 31st of July 1959 in Townsville, northern Queensland. She had a good childhood, private schooling, dreamt of becoming a singer, but at some point, in her own words, she blew it. She had a daughter named Kylie when she was quite young, and she was a good mother by all accounts. She had a couple of serious relationships, including a marriage that broke down. And in 1994, she met Michael McConaughey and they started a relationship. And I think the blowing it is pertaining to some of her life choices, some of the men she fell in with, some of the criminals and a few of the rails periods with drinking, etc. Her and her husband had a tumultuous relationship Both had drinking problems. Julie was performing community service, working off some minor offences. In 1998, a mutual friend introduced Julie to Leonard Fraser, and this friend didn't like McConaughey, and she was angling for her to see someone else to get out of this relationship, anyone, I think. On the 27th of December 1998, Julie was at the Airport Liberties nightclub in downtown Rockhampton, She had a fairly big night of drinking and dancing and would end up conversing with the bouncer, a guy named McKean, about her ups and downs in life. When she left the club that night, it would be the last time that Julie Taylor would be seen alive. And McConaughey would take a few days to report her missing, and it had come out that the pair had quite a violent relationship, with the police attending their house many times in the months prior to her disappearance. McConaughey would come under suspicion as the police went through their life with a fine tooth comb. Weeks turned into months with no answers and Julie would be on Australia's most wanted missing person segment. It would take some time, nearly two years, for it to become apparent what happened to her. After she left the club around 2am, she walked north over the Fitzroy Bridge and Leonard Fraser was lurking in the shadows on one of his midnight prowls 
He liked her. The pair had met through friends at the meatworks in June and had gone out a couple of times. Fraser had said he would protect her from the violent McConaughey. Little did Julie know that Fraser himself was the real threat. As Julie rolled a cigarette, the shoeless Fraser attacked her ferociously from the shadows, King hitting her with brute force. It was an isolated spot and early in the morning, dark, Fraser, in his own words, flogged into her, breaking her neck. He later bragged he heard bones crunching and snapping in two. He laid her in the grass, ripped off her jeans and shirt, removed her bra and strangled her. He'd thrown her sandals and bra away, but he wasn't done. He then raped her lifeless body. Fraser would later dispose of her jeans and shirt in a nearby wheelie bin and go home to wash all traces of blood and semen from his body. And the following morning, he invited his girlfriend to go for a drive with him. And when she declined, he had the green light to dispose of Julie's body. What he was going to do if she said yes, I don't know. But Fraser drove up along the Capricorn coast into Ritamata Drive at Kinka Beach. He covered Julie's body in dead branches in what was a surprisingly effective burial that was well hidden for nearly two years. But before her body was discovered, Fraser would come back and decapitate her, and it was suspected by the police he continued to defile her decomposed corpse when he returned to do this. He'd bury her head at Kemp Beach in Yapoon. And he did this with the thought that without her head, her body would be extremely hard to identify. get to Natasha Ryanclough, who we mentioned in the introduction of this episode. Fraser had confessed to her murder also, and it was a detailed confession too. He'd given two different locations where her body had been dumped, but the police had been unable to locate her remains. But supporting Fraser's own confession were two independent witness statements confirming they'd seen Fraser and Ryan together prior to her disappearance. So the case was mounting against Fraser here, but he was still thinking the insanity defence was going to work out for him. But when it came apparent that it wasn't going to work out the way he'd hoped, after he was assessed as sane and fit to stand trial, Fraser reverted back to his old story, claiming Squeaky had framed him and he was the real culprit. The problem was, in trying to implicate the mysterious Squeaky in a draft press release he was writing... Fraser ended up incriminating himself by including details that only the killer would know about the crimes, such as the items used as ligatures, Chloe. After getting all of the ducks in a row, the police charged Fraser with the murders of Sylvia Benedetti, Julie Taylor, Beverly Lego and Natasha Ryan, despite not locating her remains. Now, we've mentioned Natasha Ryan's case a couple of times and you've even introed the show with it. Sean, but what makes her case so special with the other heinous crimes and murders Leonard Fraser committed at this point? Well, nothing, to put it short, because it turned out at day nine of trial in 2003, there was no case to answer to for the murder of Natasha Ryan. She'd been located alive and well, having been living in hiding for the past five years with her boyfriend, Scott Black. She was found hiding inside a cupboard when the police located her on a tip 
and she was only a kilometre or so away from her family home in Rockhampton. Ryan would then sell her story to the media, which caused a big hoo-ha at the time, Chloe. You had journalists flock to Rockhampton, and even Max Markson, the high-profile celebrity agent, sashayed into town to represent his latest big client. And as a result, Leonard Fraser is found not guilty, casting a huge cloud of doubt over the whole trial. Ryan appears in court and says she's never seen Fraser in her life, which is a lie, but she went on to say that after an argument with a teacher, she simply ran away with her boyfriend and started afresh. A teenage mistake and lie that had some massive implications. Now, personally, I fall into the same camp as Teresa Steinhardt when it comes to Natasha Ryan. Teresa said she deserved a good slap for what she'd put her family and the broader public through, and I tend to agree. So we're not going to give Ryan any more airtime here in this episode. I think 60 Minutes and Woman's Day did enough of that at the time. But the details around this are pertinent to the overall story, unfortunately, and it was a huge deal at the time. So we'll cover some specifics about this little subplot in our next Patreon episode. So the trial is delayed but resumed with the other charges proceeding. Quinn gets his moment in the sun as star witness of the trial. Fraser is visibly aggressive towards Quinn but disinterested the rest of the time. Even when his confessions are read out and tales of his gloating about murders is relayed in front of the victim's families. Fraser even faked a heart attack at one point during the trial. The jury deliberated for a day and found him guilty of murdering Benedetti and Lego but on the lesser charge of manslaughter of Julie Taylor, citing lack of intent to kill her, or at least evidence to indicate that. Either way, Fraser is sentenced to a further three indefinite jail terms, with the judge describing him as an untreatable psychopath who showed no remorse. But it's arguable if Fraser inevitably got what he deserved. Only a few short years later, on New Year's Day 2007, Leonard Fraser died in the Princess Alexandra Hospital section of Walston Correctional around 4am from cardiac arrest after complaining of chest pains earlier in the week. While some might feel he got off lightly and would have preferred he served out his days inside, others are glad he's gone and have been able to close that chapter and finally move on with their lives. Inside Leonard Fraser's house prior to his incarceration in 1999, police found three ponytails of hair, all of which had been hacked off with a blade of some kind, but still had the hair ties attached. The Queensland State Police would actually engage the FBI in the US to test the hair. The FBI established that none of the hair belonged to any of the known victims of Leonard Fraser. It would appear the Rockhampton rapist had other potential victims the secrets of which he'd taken to his grave. We'll talk about these potential victims in our next Patreon episode. I'm so sorry for all the victims and their families and what they no doubt went through just coming into contact with someone like Fraser. He was a calculated and vicious person. It seemed he lived his life almost to simply achieve destruction and pain, which is so scary. The thing I always want to know in a case like this where it's so violent is what the perpetrator's childhood was like. I find this case particularly shocking because by all accounts, Fraser's childhood was relatively normal. 
everything seemed to change for him at 14 when he left school. But of all the things written about him, nothing has ever been reported that happened that was odd before then. And it really makes you think about nature versus nurture. And even though I believe nurture has a massive part to play, that some people's brains are not just like others. He was a sociopath from the start. I read a great book in preparation for this episode, Chloe, called Things a Killer Would Know by Paula Donovan. And she was a journalist and reporter in Queensland at the time of Fraser's crimes. It's a really great read for anyone wishing to delve a bit deeper into this story. There's also a great documentary on Fraser by Crime Investigation Australia, which is worth a watch. You can find that online. And we've actually played a couple of clips from that. Fraser was an absolutely brutal, sex-crazed maniac, a true psycho in every sense of the word. And this story leaves you with an eerie feeling, knowing that he may have many more victims that we'll just never know about. In fact, I think it's probably has quite a few more. And if you connect those dots, it does make him close to one of our worst, if not the worst, serial killer that our country's ever seen. The whole MO of this guy, Chloe, the King Hits thing, The barefoot prowling, just absolutely sickening. But what I didn't realise until diving into the research was the grooming he did on his victims. He knew most of them to some extent, enough for them to drop their guards and then he went in for the kill. And the enjoyment, the sheer pleasure you hear in his voice when telling Quinn he heard bones cracking and snapping and he flogged into her, etc. He's the absolute epitome of a true serial killer, this guy. And he liked that. He liked that moniker. And that's no surprise. This guy was just one sick bastard. Yeah, that's it. I don't think you can say much more than he was truly a sick bastard, that's for sure. Absolutely. Chloe, in finishing things off with this case, I just wanted to add a small clarifying statement. We have referred to Julie, one of the victims in this story, as having the surname of both Turner and Taylor at different points. The reason for that stems from the original source of information used in the research of that particular part of the episode. It is one and the same person, but different sources use different surnames. I believe her actual surname was Turner, but in Donovan's book, she used Taylor. So that's an inconsistency on our part and a learning for us, but I just wanted to clarify that so no one in Julie's family or close to the case would infer any disrespect. We got some five-star reviews to read out. The first said that it was thoroughly researched and beautiful, that this was my first true crime podcast and it was a fantastic one to start with. Incredibly well-researched and presented in an entertaining format, topped off with high-level production quality. I'd highly recommend everyone give it a listen. Awesome work, Chloe and Sean. Excited for future episodes. And that was by someone with the handle that is spelled C-O-V-F-E-F-E-G-2-G. Oh, shit. Kavefe. Kavif? <laughs> Kavif. <laughs> I think that's what it is. As a Donald Trump thing. Do you know that? No. He said he had a Twitter uh, oh, thing. The frog. No, uh, he said it was like a year or so ago and he's like, despite the constant negative press, Kavefe. Yeah. So Kavefe is this ugly frog that was a thing that was against him and then he hijacked it and made it about him. Oh, really? Yeah. Is that how you say it? Kavefe or Kavif? Kavefe. Kavefe. I think, Sounds yeah. Kavefe. There is yeah. a clip of Trump pronouncing it. I didn't know about the frog part. I knew it was the tweet. There's a podcast on it. Yeah, okay. Mm. There's a podcast. Mm. <laughs> um, another one from T. Polky was great podcast. Really great podcast to listen to. Informative 
well-produced, well-researched and delivered with great emotion and expression that stories like these need. The last one was titled Relatable and that was by someone with the handle that spelled G-A-J-A-O-E-E-O-E and it said, very well-produced show, great research and is delivered in a very real and relatable manner. Great true crime podcast that has already been added as one of my favourites. Um, sincerely thank you to everyone who took the time to review us. We really appreciate it and we really appreciate the time you took to write those things. Yeah, thanks, guys. That's very nice to hear. What's some happy thoughts for the week, Chloe? My happy thought for this week is that I'm really grateful that my week is going to plan, that I work from home, I have a to-do list, and sometimes it gets derailed with meetings and all sorts of things. And this week I just feel really on top of things. So by... We record on a Wednesday. By a Wednesday afternoon, that's a pretty good run. Yeah, absolutely. Good to hear. What's yours? So my happy thought for this week comes from my eldest daughter, who's two and a half, and we discovered that she's actually got an imaginary friend named Kevin (laughs) in the last (laughs) week or so, which is kind of creepy uh, because we were were telling her just to watch the volume at one point because her, her little sister was sleeping. And later she told us to watch the volume because Kevin was sleeping. So I don't know what to make of that. Great imagination. Absolutely, yeah. I don't know where she gets it from. (laughs) And if anyone wants to get in touch with us, you can join the Facebook group, which is True Blue True Crime on Facebook. Uh, If you request to join, um, we just share more information there, some of the clips and videos that we talked about. And if you want to email us with any feedback or thoughts, you can. The email is truebluecrime at gmail.com. If you're interested in hearing more about these cases or the little crimes within the crimes we go into, jump on across to Patreon. I know it sounds like a really foreign thing if you haven't done it before, but it's really easy to sign up. You get sent an email link and you literally just copy and paste that link into whatever podcast app you listen to and you get the feed as the Patreon episodes come out, just like a regular podcast. Uh, It'll come up with a little blue logo for True Blue True Crime this time, and you'll get all those extra episodes for a couple of bucks a month. Thanks again for listening, guys, and we'll see you next week on True Blue True Crime. Thank you. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.